Hello, and welcome to Hang Time, a St. Michelle Wine Estates podcast where we hang with the exceptional people behind our incredible portfolio of wines. I'm Paul Asakainen, National Wine Educator, hanging here in Napa Valley. We created this podcast to feed your intellectual curiosity, whether you're behind the wheel, up in the air, or just thirsty for knowledge. Welcome back to Hang Time. To change things up a bit, I thought it might be fun to do more of a personal journey interview with one of our winemakers. I invited Leah Aiden, winemaker for Chateau Saint-Michel, to share her story that begins in Alaska, continues through the Washington State University wine program, globe trots through Australia, and finally lands her back in Washington State with Saint-Michel Wine Estates. We are so lucky to have such inspirational and passionate people like Leah making our wines. I hope you enjoy her story as much as I did. Well, good morning, everybody. We have a great winemaker for Chateau Saint-Michel, Leah Aiden, with us today. Uh, Leah, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. How are you, Paul? Oh, I'm very good. Thanks for asking. Um, You know, before we get started with our conversation today, I want to give a little bit of a a sense of what's going on in the vineyards and the wineries. Uh, Here we are in the 2020 vintage. Uh, We're, gosh, just uh, four months away from a you know, it's a coming. successful harvest is come, always comes fast, right? So give us a little bit of sense of uh, what's going on in the cellar these days. Yeah, so, um, you know, we've got the 2018 wines and the 2019 wines at the cellar at Canoe Ridge right now. Um, we're putting the final touches on 2018. So both, you know, the big blends, the Columbia Valley blends, and, you know, Ethos, all our VRC club wines. Um, everything's getting bottle ready right now. So, a little bit of filtering, just final polish. Um, so those are looking really good. 2018 is is turning out a really nice kind of ripe sort of juicy year, which is nice to see. Good. Um, and we're just starting to blend for 2019. So the wines, you know, have been in barrel for the last six, seven months. Um, we actually started with Tenet this year okay. um, because of all the complexities of not being able to travel and see each other and all that kind of stuff. Um, we decided to start there. So we, you know, we had to do it a little bit differently than we normally do with uh, Michelle and Philippe. Um, but we sent them three cases of wine. Uh, so we all had the same wine staring at each other over Zoom. More Zoom, um, more Zoom calls, right? <laughs> more Zoom calls. It was, but it was really good. We were all actually um, surprised at how well it went and how the conversations were able to happen and tasting was able to happen. Um, so that was actually, it was a really good, positive experience out of, you know, sure. everything that's happened in 2020. Um, and we're actually working on the 2019 Artist Series wine next. And that's, let's see, we worked on that yesterday and got about 90% of the way there. Okay. Uh, so we're going to come back with fresh palettes on Tuesday morning and finish it up. Because typically Artist Series is the first uh, it is, first yeah. wine you make. Yeah. yeah. So a little bit but, of departure. But since, uh, you know, since Pundit and Tenet, their varieties don't overlap with artist series. It wasn't a problem to right. kind of get that done first, get it out of the way as Michelle and Philippe's time is important as well. Right. Are you guys um, still doing the uh, single vineyard series for the, uh, the pundit? We are. Yeah. Sure. Yep. So we, um, we actually decide those. Um, and again, we, you know, we had to do it a little bit differently this year, but we, uh, we selected three different regions. Um, 
to kind of, you know, exemplify a great outstanding wine for that region and also for the year and also for the style of winemaking. So we got to taste those together as well. Nice. How's things in the vineyard looking for 2020? Uh, it's looking really good. Yeah, weather's uh, weather's cooperating. Um, so far, and... like right on course, maybe a tiny bit a week early, maybe in some areas, but um, yeah, looking real good. I'm actually going to head out to the Waluk Slope and Coal Creek this afternoon and check nice. things out. Very good. Very good. Well, uh, well, the weather question I wanted to ask you is, uh, you know, everybody's always interested in what the winemakers like to drink at home. So we've all kind of been cooped up. What's your favorite go-to wines? You can have a few if you want. I definitely have a few. I can't just drink the same wine. That's right. Wine. That's right. Um, I mean, I I love making seafood, and I also love making really spicy food. Uh, so Aroika is hands yeah. down a staple in my mind. Right. Um, and let's see, as far as red wines, I go all over the place. I'm a big Pinot fan, so you know I've got some Pats and Halls mm-hmm. stashed away. <laughs> Um, got some era stashed away. I love pundit. Like that is an excellent me daily too. drink for me. Um, it's fresh and light enough that it goes with so many different meals. Yep. Um, and then I like to taste everybody's club wines once they get released. So I love tasting what, you know, our enologists come up with and what Brian, our head winemaker comes up with. So. Yeah, you're lucky. I, I don't ever get those samples. So it's, uh, it, I have to try to get my hands on some of those. We are lucky like that. We have a nice <laughs> little library of wines that can be yeah. that are available. <laughs> Very cool. Well, on to the, the meat of our interview today. Um, you know, you have a really intriguing story that um, really shows the success of the Washington State uh, University Wine Science Center and Chateau St. Michel's involvement, you've kind of been uh, groomed through the whole system on both sides, if you will. Um, and sure. I really wanted to give get some sense of, uh, you know, your background, starting maybe even in high school of where you, uh, you know, developed your spark and interest in, in winemaking, or was it always that way? Or is, was there a turning point? Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably the most commonly asked question if I do a winemaker dinner or meeting with distributors is, how do you get into the wine industry? Um, and I'm, you know, certainly a relatively young winemaker. And so people are always a little bit caught off guard by how I got into it at the, before I could drink, you know, in high school. Um, <laughs> Reed had uh, the same answer, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I grew up in Alaska, you know, no winemaking up there, uh, but my dad was a distributor up there. Um, and so I kind of saw him, I saw the nice parts of it, I'm sure, but I saw him go, you know, on incentive trips to wine country and nice wine dinners. Um, And really when I was in high school and thinking about what I wanna do and where am I gonna go, it was definitely get out of Alaska, that was number one. Um, And find something science related that, you know, that sparks my interest. Um, And it kind of just fell into place. My dad gave me a book on winemaking sort of out of the blue and I flipped through it and then you know I wanted to go somewhere on the west coast that was relatively close to Alaska easy to get back but also out of Alaska Um, and kind of realized that there's a winemaking degree you can get a four-year science degree which most people still don't know that Um, and and then really it came down to UC Davis or Washington State Um, those are really the two big options on the West Coast. Um, And then, you know, Davis is certainly heralded as like the pioneer of of the United States for wine education. Um, And the Washington State program was relatively young at that point. 
Um, but the opportunities for scholarships and just the student to teacher ratio and the, you know, the proximity of Washington to Alaska, everything just kind of fell into place that um, it seemed like the right place to go. It's also very much, you know, a typical state party school and I wanted the full college experience as well. So it kind of ticked all of those boxes at the same time for me. Um, people so I applied, people I like to invite in. you to their parties, right? They, uh, cause you always <laughs> yeah. brought the good wine. <laughs> I don't think I was drinking much wine All at right. that point. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, you know, I signed up and got in and went for it. Um, and absolutely fell in love with it from day one. Very cool. Now you also received a scholarship through Chateau St. Michel. Tell us about that and how they, what the selection process is for that. And what made you yeah, qualify? Um, so, you know, it's, it's been a while now, but my memory um, of the scholarship process at Washington State is, you know, you throw your ring into the hat and you don't necessarily need to apply for every scholarship independently. Um, and that, you know, that's, that's one of the great things about their program is it's, it's based in the College of Agriculture. Um, and so while there's, you know, certainly a lot of people going for the same scholarship in the College of Business or the College of Communications. The College of Agriculture is a little bit smaller group. Um, and you know, so there's just more funding for every student, I think in that sense. Um, but certainly, you know, your GPA coming in from high school, um, any extracurriculars, you know, I, I had a pretty good GPA coming in and I had advanced placement credits coming in. Um, you know, and then you write, you write your letter saying, you know, this is why I want to be here. This is what I want to do. This is how these funds would help me. Mm. Um, and I, yeah, I received the Chateau St. Michel scholarship twice. Um, so I actually, I Good wrote for you. my thank you later to Ted Basler, <laughs> uh, you know, at the, at the prime age of 18 years old. So I knew his name very early on. Dear uncle Ted. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> thank you so much for this head start. That's fun. Awesome. Uh, so, you know, I think a lot of questions exist around the differences between uh, Washington State University's program uh, versus Davis. And if you maybe want to expand a little bit more on what you thought the, you know, when you looked at both of them from external, but now what you know now about those programs and some of the differences. I know that for me, the thing that keeps coming up is that Washington's so full of discovery right now. It's, you know, all these new AVAs are popping up and just, you know, we've barely scratched the surface with how much, how big just Columbia Valley is on its own and all the little Definitely. pockets of, uh, of things. So I, I, you know, we're California, you know, there's, there's still planting, but you know, Napa, I live you know, here in Napa Valley and, um, we're planted out. There's, you know, if you want to buy <laughs> right. a vineyard, you got to replant it. What's already there, and that's about it. So yeah, um, you can you know. probably guess what grape is going into that new planting. <laughs> well, you kind of have to, otherwise you will never make any money. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about what you think the differences are, and what the excitement around uh, Washington State University and some of the technology too. I think that'd be interesting for some people. Definitely. I mean, I think, you know. I think you nailed it, just the region itself, like the Pacific Northwest is so unique as a wine growing region. Um, and, and to that extent, you know, I think Oregon and the Willamette Valley is a little more niche. They've kind of honed in on what they do and what they wanna do. Um, but Washington is really, even still kind of the wild west. Um, you know, you see vineyards coming up in regions that you didn't think possible would be planted. and 
and you see grape varieties, you know, Italian grape varieties, German grape varieties, the, the Bordeaux, the Rhones, um, you know, little hints of Burgundy here and there. Um, it's really a lot of people trying a lot of different things and which is, which is really cool as a winemaker to see. Um, going back to the program a little bit, you know, I was, I was probably unknown in, in, in a good way how agricultural based the program was at the time. And I, and I believe it still is. Um, but, you know, my first three years at WSU were really agriculture, horticulture, not just how grapes grow, but how do cherries grow, how do apples grow, um, you know, just learning the fundamentals of soil science, of insects, you know, life cycles, of treatments, of all these different sort of landscapes that come together to grow a nice vineyard. Um, and looking back, I think that was so important because you talk to any winemaker and they say, you know, good wine comes from great grapes. It all starts in the vineyard. Um, so to have that, you know, understanding and then get to winemaking, um, it was just so great to, to look back on. And, and then when I get out to the vineyard, I, even though I'm a winemaker and I don't get out there as much as I probably could and should, you know, I can see what's going on and understand what, you know, our viticulturalists are talking about and what the growers are seeing and, you know, what they need. Right. Um, and then I think from the practical standpoint of, of, you know, Davis versus WSU or um, anything like that, you know, they're so, they're both so um, strict and, and forthcoming with their science. They're really, you know, they're both very technical programs. If you want to go down the rabbit hole of research, you know, I think, I think they're both great institutions for that. Um, and the professors, you know, um, I've had a chance to meet some of the Davis professors, but I have good relationships with all the WSU professors and, and they're really excellent. You know, they're really, they're switched on. They love not just, not just what they do, but you know, they love the wine industry as well. Um, and, and it's really cool to see. And I think probably because Washington is a little bit smaller, you know, they have those relationships, not just with St. Michelle, but with, you know, other growers and other winemakers, they really, look for involvement from the community to design the next research project or you know if if the entire state of washington is seeing the same problem then they're going to try and find the solution for it right i know that uh dr had cling you know he's spoken at numerous events on the business side of things and i mm -hmm. think that's always been uh you know striking to me that you know he understands that you know Yes, you can make a grapes, but somebody's got to sell it too. And oh, yeah. know, having that involvement <laughs> and educating the people about that, and you know, just understanding that there is two ends of this uh, spectrum, you know. But uh, sharing his knowledge and being so integrated with the business community, I think, has been uh, really strong for sure. Very much so. I t I totally agree. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, is there any uh, pieces of technology you think are specifically cool? that uh, you saw at WSU that it's kind of new and that it hadn't been seen before or designed from the ground up? Mm, I mean, so I was, you know, I was at, I was at WSU Pullman. So that was well before the, the brand new wine science center was invented and created right. and established. Um, and so, you know, the, the technology that, that Pullman had was, was fairly basic, which I think is, is probably a good place to start for any young winemaker, just learning you know, how does an old school pump work? How does an old school press work? Because that's probably what you're going to see when you go to your first or second winery. Right. Go, um, go clean it, right? <laughs> yeah. Clean it and then clean it again uh -huh. and then yeah. clean it again. Yeah. Um, but, you know, really, it, it wasn't until 
you get to work at a big facility, like, you know, some of the St. Michelle facilities that you get to see and actually work with some of the cooler new technology, um, whether that's reverse osmosis or electrodialysis. Um, it's really only large companies that can sort of afford to, to have those technologies. Um, but since I've graduated and, and gone back and now the Tri-Cities Wine Science Center is there, it, it's just incredible. The amount of um, just direction and command they have over those little ferments. It's just, you know, everything is hooked up to a master system. And, you know, so you can really design the perfect trial and really have everything identical except for the one thing that you want to look at. Um, and it's, you know, it's spaced out and it's new and, you know, students just have the opportunity to go in there and create what they want to create and learn something and see what happens if it doesn't go the right way. <laughs> that's, right. that's a big part of winemaking. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've also heard that, uh, you know, sometimes Davis has a profile of the type of winemaker that comes out of Davis uh, and it's maybe a little homogenous. Um, it's, you know, these are rumors, of course, but uh, yeah, they, yeah. I just want to see if there's, you know, if that was addressed at Washington State University that, you know, we want to give you the freedom to make the wines that you want to make and not so mm. much here, you're going to make it this way and this is what people expect. And, you know, and then, you know, you go work for a winery and they're actually sometimes even wineries were looking for a Davis profile, you know, is, do you see yeah. that environment changing a little bit? I haven't heard that, but I definitely believe it. Um, Cause I think, I think certainly everywhere I've been, you kind of, you do develop a house palate. Um, you know, you're tasting with the same people every day and you tend to like what they like. Um, and you tend to, you know, it's certainly in the winemaking. If, if I'm learning from a winemaker or from a professor who says, you know, I add this to my juice and it clarifies it, then you begin to think that's normal. Um, so I, I definitely fully understand, um, how that happens and why that happens, um, which is, you know, part of the reason why I think it's so important to see so many different wineries in different regions and work with different people. Um, they're not all going to be the best experience, but you learn things like that. Um, you know, I think part of going back to, you know, what the students get to do, it's, it's a bit challenging, I think, um, sometimes because they have to plan, you know, what grapes they can get donated really mm -hmm. um, for the students to work with. And sometimes that's not every variety under the sun, but it might be from one or two um, suppliers, some growers, you know, St. Michelle donates grapes every year to the students. Um, so sometimes it's limited by that, but certainly, you know, yeast experience, nutrient experiments, all the kind of fermentation things I think is, you know, up to the student's design, which is fun. That's cool. Uh, you also spent some time in Australia, I understand, and even uh, earned your master's over there. Uh, how did, did that all come about? And tell us about that experience. Uh, so that, that came about from a WF, WSU professor, honestly. Um, I was in my senior year at Pullman and decided to meet with the microbiology professor. And, you know, we were chatting and he was he was essentially telling me that <laughs> I need to get out and do more and see more. And he really recommended that I get my master's degree, um, which looking back, I don't know that it was a necessary step, but I, I wouldn't change it for the world looking back at the same time. Um, and, you know, so he, he recommended um, the University of Adelaide, which is where I ended up going. Uh, he also recommended um, 
New Zealand or France or Canada. You know, he just really just encouraged get out. <laughs> me. He really did. He encouraged me to explore. Um, so I, you know, I graduated and I went and did two harvests down in California. Um, I went to the Russian River Valley first and then I went to Napa Valley um, and then applied for the master's degree at the University of Adelaide got into that um and booked the one-way ticket and was out of here <laughs> wow um and that was that's a two-year program and fairly different from master's programs in the u.s it's not 100 percent research so you do coursework and then you have the option of doing like a six-month research program um, which is what i did um and there it was very hands-on so they had a very big vineyard right on campus um, the student winery was almost like a, you know, a winery you might see from an independent producer. It had different sized tanks from different locations, different sized pumps, you know, it really was kind of like a, a hodgepodge put together, but that was extremely practical um, because that's, again, that's what you see out in the real world. It's not identical sized fermentation vessels and everything's not, you know, clued into each other. Um, and so that really was make as much wine as you possibly can. If you can pick those grapes and throw it in a tank, do it and see what happens. Um, so I got to make a lot of wine at Adelaide. Um, and it was an extremely international group of people as well. Um, so I met people, you know, from Australia, New Zealand, Canada, India, China, um, Israel, South Africa. Um, it was just, it was a great, great experience. Um, and there, you know, similar to Washington in, in the Tri-Cities campus now, the industry is so in tune with that university. Um, so you see the small winemakers coming in, asking questions, getting samples tested. Um, it's, you know, you got to know them really closely. And then they also have their um, AWRI, the Australian Wine Research Institute, um, is on the same campus. It's in the same building. So then you see the totally different spectrum, the really high level minutia research that's, you know, at their forefront. Um, so it was a great experience. Right on. It, does sound, it sounds fun uh, for sure. And then when you came back, uh, is that when you pursued a position with Chateau Saint-Michel? It was, I mean, it was right time, right place, like one of those magical moments. Um, I had actually decided I was gonna leave Australia. I was, I ended up staying there for five years wow. um, and was working for a very large company there. Um, and, and after five years, you know, in my third or fourth visa, it was kind of like time to become a permanent citizen and go down that road um, or maybe try and come back to the US and, you know, see my family and friends again. Right. Um, and so I decided it was time to leave Australia. Um, and I was, you know, I was open to going different places. I wasn't just looking at Washington. I was looking at California. I was looking at Canada. Um, and then the assistant traveling winemaker position for Chateau Saint-Michel came up. Um, so I applied immediately. My first interview was over Skype because I was still in Australia with Bob and Juan. Um, it was about midnight my time, <laughs> you know, <and laughs> 3 p.m. their time. Um, but it went really well. I felt really good about it. Um, and I think they felt really good about it. And, you know, they wanted to have a second interview in person. So at that point, uh, I booked a one-way ticket for Washington, um, packed up my stuff and, you know, hope the best for the second right. interview. <laughs> Wing it a prayer. Um, but, but it really, so the second interview was, um, 
three days with Bob. He took me to every facility in Washington. You know, we saw, we met all the people. This, you know, talked about not just the job, but St. Michelle and the Washington wine industry and everything. Um, and they offered me the job and that was that. <laughs> cool. So speaking of that job, the assistant traveling winemaker, right? It, it sounds, uh, you know, <laughs> like an interesting uh, role. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Kind of like it's a unicorn job, right? Is it? It's, I mean, <laughs> until I can't say it now, but when I had that job, it was the best job in the company for sure. <laughs> Um, and it, and it is a really unique position, you know, so not just Chateau St. Michel, but 14 Hands and Columbia Crest, the three power brands, um, they all get the help from outside facilities that aren't owned by the company. And we call those custom crush facilities. Um, and they are scattered throughout the state based on, you know, different winemaking regions. Um, and the idea is that, you know, uh, let's say Canoe Ridge sends fruit to one of these facilities. They ferment it in the style of Canoe Ridge, and then they send that wine to us later. So it gives us some breathing room during harvest. Um, and really, so that traveling winemaker job was going to the partner facilities, to the custom crush facilities, and making sure that the wines are getting made in the style that we want. Um, that they're following directions, or if they have questions, you know, I'm the person to ask. And then, uh, and then after harvest, getting those wines blended in the way that the different winemakers want, getting them shipped out to the different facilities, getting them ready for bottling. Um, so it was, it was a fantastic way to come back to Washington wine industry, because I met so many winemakers from not just St. Michelle, but across the state. Um, I got to see fruit from every region, um, both white and red. Um, and I got to work with and get to know, you know, the, the style differences between Chateau St. Michel and Columbia Crest and 14 Hands. Um, that's and sound- we're in different protocols, all that stuff. Yeah, so valuable. I mean, that's just incredible. Um, we, I know that, um, we, you know, we have Lacey in that position now. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, Lacey Steffi. Lacey's excellent. And we actually, you know, when I first started, she was working at one of the partner facilities. Okay. Um, so she, you know, and again, so she knew what our protocols were um, because she was at one of those partner facilities. So it's just an excellent fit for her. We're so happy to have her. Yeah. That sounds like a great symbiotic relationship to attract good talent, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's a great relationship with all of those facilities as well. You know, we're not their only customers, but we're certainly one of the larger customers for most of them. Um, and just, you know, and they all have their own house style as well. So, you know, we might send the same fruit or the same vineyard, let's say to two or three of those different facilities and we get different results back. Um, and those are great to see as well. You know, we don't want everything to taste exactly the same. Sure. Tell us about your current role, um, as winemaker for Chateau St. Michelle, what's kind of changed now and what are you responsible for? Yeah. Uh, so two years ago now, I moved down to Canoe Ridge Estate, which is Chateau St. Michelle's red wine facility. Uh, so no more working with white grapes. That's gone, uh, except for a little Viognier and our Syrah co-ferments. You know, that's always fun to see a white grape come into the facility. Um, but really, you know, much more intimate with uh, the grapes that we see. Um, you know, we have our reserve winery that's all hand-picked fruit, very small fermentations, anything from a half ton to eight tons. Things you see, you know, at like North Star, very similar size. Um, so all of our estate fruit goes there, all of the Coal Creek and all of the Canoe Ridge fruit goes through that, um, 
process in the reserve winery. Um, cool toys like concrete fermenters, amphora, um, all the fun, fun gadgets that a lot of wineries aren't able to have. Optical sorter. Optical sorter, absolutely. Uh, you know, and then we have the big production side as well. Right. Um, but but you know, it's it's really so a big difference I think is is getting to see the amount of Coal Creek fruit and Kenya Ridge fruit because we really keep that we don't send that out to partner facilities unless we're really strapped for space. Right. Um, and just, I mean, just those two vineyards in itself, they're incredible and they have such diversity, um, so many different varieties to play with. And even, you know, even just within Cabernet, Coal Creek now has four or five different clones of Cabernet. You know, they have some of the original plantings from the seventies. They have the fan trellis, they have, you know, the new fan trellis, but just so many cool things that we get to keep separate at Canoe and really learn about. Sure. Yeah. know, it gives you all the flexibility to create complexity, you know, just within one varietal too. Yeah. Super cool. And then probably the next, you know, the barrel program that we have at Canoe is just incredible. Um, you know, we house somewhere between 80,000 and 90,000 barrels on site and, and just the variety of coopers and toasts and forests and everything that goes into just producing one barrel um, has been a really cool thing to learn that I haven't gotten to learn anywhere else yet. Yeah, I think you just did a, a cool little uh, one-sheet graphic on uh, all the different iterations and the importance that barrels have to the final wine. Yeah, it was a lot to put on one sheet. I'm sure there's things I missed, but, <laughs> but this is a lot. I think know? it was great. I think it was great. <laughs> you taste the same barrel, you know, a limousine medium plus from one Cooper and a limousine medium plus from another Cooper and they are not the same barrel. Yep, for sure. Oh, and say hi to my, uh, my buddy Vincent next time you see him too. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so back a little bit to uh, Washington State University, you said you have a still an ongoing connection with the school and um, tell us about, you know, some of the education efforts that uh, you have with them and what that means. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was something that was really important to me um, when I first came back. So even in the assistant traveling winemaker position, um, you know, it was it was Bob and I, and we wanted to meet with the school and see what they're up to, and we want to tell them what we're up to, and we just created this monthly meeting. Um, and also, you know, we want to go check out the Wine Science Center and see what's happening inside all those little vessels. Um, so we set up this monthly meeting, and it's been going on for five years now. Um, and we just get together. And so we're talking with Dr. Heine Kling, Dr. Harbertson, Dr. Collins. Um, and, and yeah, they tell us what they have um, ideas for as far as new research projects. We tell them what we have ideas for or, you know, different things. We see if we had a really difficult vineyard, then we maybe want to look into it. Or, you know, we had... Um, we had a really early frost event in the 2019 harvest um, and created a lot of challenges, not just for us, but across the state, um, you know, and that led to a brand new research project for them because um, right. not many places get freezes in the middle of harvest. And it really does change the, the compounds within the grapes and around the grapes. Um, and that hasn't been studied before. So, yeah. you know, it's, we did a tasting with David Rosenthal and, you know, he was going through a lot of trials uh, tasting, you know, for, you know, what kind of impact that freeze had yeah. on some of the grapes. And, you know, we, of course, we as a company made 
hard decisions, but you know, didn't make wine because it was just not to the quality in certain certain aspects. Yeah. So, yeah. That um yeah we actually we had two freeze events. Um, one on October 3rd and the second on October 11th. And between those two, you know, what is that? Eight days, those eight days felt like a month um, because we tried everything under the sun in the vineyards and in the winery. How do we deal with this? Can we deal with this? Um, things in the vineyards we can do, things in the winery we can do. And and after those eight days, it was it was heartbreaking to, to make those decisions, but um, really I think the right decision to, you know, nobody wants to bring in wine that isn't going to be up to our quality. The growers can't have it. We can't have it. Um, so I'm hoping that WSU comes up with a brilliant solution for us. Right, right. Um, so what's what's next for uh, our relationship with, uh, with WSU? I mean, do we have an internship program or an externship kind of situation at all with them? Um, you know, so we do, so in addition to the monthly meetings, um, I get a chance to meet with their senior level students, um, once or twice a year, um, they have a blended learning class where they, you know, they make wines and then they blend them together and, and they produce a bottle, I think that gets sold to, you know, for later scholarships. Um, and so I've participated in their blending sessions before, just kind of directing them or, you know, this is what I see, this is what I, you know, just kind of giving some guidance on, on how we blend at least. Um, I've also done sort of like a ask me anything session with, with their classes, you know, um, which re it really is, you know, anything from how do I get a visa going to Australia or <laughs> what's the coolest piece of technology that you've ever gotten to work with, or, you know, what do you think is the future of Washington wine? Um, and that's, that's really cool. It's cool to see what the students are thinking and what their, in, where their interests lie. Um, and, and certainly for internships, you know, we're always, always encouraging them to apply both in the vineyards if, if their interest lies more in the vineyards um, or, or in the winery. Yeah. Parting advice for uh, perhaps a young aspiring winemaker out there as we uh, wrap up today. I mean, given, given my experience, I say go travel. Go travel before you get a permanent job. Um, because I really think that, you know, the different regions you see, the different wineries you see, you're never going to see the same piece of equipment in two different wineries. Every, every winery has different equipment, whether it's hand-me-down, you know, we have hand-me-down things from Erath, we have hand-me-down things from North Star. Um, it's just the way that wineries are built, really. Um, and so having the knowledge of, you know, different producers of presses, different coopers, different pumps, um, I think is so valuable. Um, and then, you know, and then getting to see different varieties. You know, I worked um, a harvest in England and I worked with varieties that I couldn't even pronounce, <laughs> ever see before. Um, I worked at a harvest in Switzerland and got to work with their native varieties, you know, and Swiss wine is, I think it's 0.1% is exported. So it's varieties you'll never get to see outside right. of Switzerland. Very cool. Yeah, so no, yeah. I, I think that's travel, good. Travel as much as you can. You can make some yep. decent money working harvests and then do it until you can't stand living out of a suitcase right. any longer. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, quite true, quite true. Well, you know, I think it's always cool to hear some of the stories of, and that's the whole point we've created this podcast is, you know, to get 
to hear the personal stories behind um, our winemakers that have put so much effort and heart into whatever they do. And uh, it truly shows in the wines. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. You bet. Thanks so much. You have been listening to Hang Time, a podcast about wine brought to you by the education team at St. Michelle Wine Estates. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this podcast or any of our wines, please drop us a line at wineed, wine-ed at smwe.com. Now go use what you have learned. Help you, it will. It will.